Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Uh, Well, my name is Carl and I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach Church and it is great to have you here tonight. Tonight I want to speak to you on the topic of the unstoppable church. If you were to think back, if you were to take your mind back to the early church, the church that exploded onto the scene in Acts 1, you would have to use the word, it would be right to use the word unstoppable. The um, 120 people that gathered that were really the start of the unstoppable church were um, quite ordinary people, right? They weren't famous people. They weren't rich people. They didn't have um, any great leverage to be able to get their message out. They didn't know famous celebrities. They didn't know famous sports people. They didn't know athletes. They didn't know anyone, yet they were an unstoppable people. Ordinary and unstoppable. If you were to go into Acts 1, you'll see that the church um, is either unknown or hated by all the people in the known world. The church thrives anyway. In Acts 4, you see religious leaders tried to shut down the Christian movement and the church thrived anyway. If you would look in your Bibles in Acts 5, Christian leaders began to be arrested and the church thrived anyway. And in Acts 7, we see Christians starting to be killed for their faith, yet the church thrives anyway. It is right to describe the early church as it exploded onto the scene as unstoppable. If you were to look around uh, the church today and you were to look around the church in Australia, uh, what word would you give the church in Australia today? What word really kind of immediately comes to mind as you consider the movement of the church in Australia today? Perhaps you might use the word tired. Or perhaps you might use the word dying. Or perhaps you might use the words dazed and confused, right? A few years ago, I preached a message where I put an article up on the screen where the article was that um, Adelaide was no longer the city of churches. It was now the city of um, murders and sex shops, right? And the argument that the writer put forward was that there'd been a number of famous murders in Adelaide and that there was also more um, sex shops per 100,000 people in Adelaide than any other city in Australia, right? And then the churches were falling away, so the church would be renamed. Well, there is a new article that has come out, but it is not a story of the revival of churches, but a new article has come out and said that we're now the, should be called the city of festivals, because now we have the Fringe, and now we have Worm Adelaide, and we have the Food and Wine Festival, but still the emergence of the church is not taking off through Adelaide. So maybe words like tired and dazed, confused are the right words. So what did the early church have, friends, that so many churches in Australia don't have? What did the early church have that so many churches in Australia should be longing for? Well, let me give you some spoilers. Spoiler number one is that the early church did not have world-class music, right? And I love the music at this church, and I love listening to great music, and And great music is very helpful, but it is not the foundation of an unstoppable church. When I first got saved into the life of a church, the music was bad. Friends, it was real bad. Our music was so bad in our church that as the music was happening in the service live on a Sunday, the senior pastor got up in the middle of the service and went, went, no, stop, start again, (laughs) in the middle of the service. 
You think Timon is passionate about music, right? (laughs) Music is helpful, but it is not the foundation. Here's another spoiler. Uh, The early church was not built on the foundation of a funny preacher. I used to think that the church would just explode if we had this um, funny preacher that could give all these great one-liners to hook everyone in. And it is true that funny, uh, being funny can um, sometimes be helpful at a way to way to capture someone's attention, but it is not the foundation of the church. It's true that in this church, it was actually the preaching of someone who made it nothing about humor, nothing about himself, and everything about Jesus that transformed my life. Humor can be helpful, and it's not the foundation. And friends, another spoiler is that a great building is not the foundation of the church. If a, a, a building can be helpful as a church thrives and it can help you run great programs, but it is not the foundation. If you come to City Reach Oakton and you can say that at any moment in this room you've experienced any kind of transformation at all, any kind of spiritual maturity at all, then you are saying that your spiritual maturity happened in a tractor shed. <laughs> That's what you're saying. This is just an old, renovated tractor shed. And they've done a heck of a job, haven't they? A heck of a job. <laughs> But it is an old tractor shed. It can't be about the buildings. New buildings can be the result of a thriving church community, but a new building will never be the foundation for a thriving church community. So let's ask, what is the foundation of the kind of unstoppable church that we see in Acts? Let me draw your attention to Acts 2.42. So if you have a Bible with you, why don't you just open up your Bibles? It might be on your phone or the pew in front of you. Open up a Bible and let's read the Word of God together. We'll draw your attention to Acts 2.42, where we get our first description of the church. It's where we see the foundation being laid for what is truly a thriving and transformational and unstoppable church community. So let's start our investigation tonight by considering the culture of an unstoppable church. Let's look at the culture of an unstoppable church. You see, every church has a culture. Every church has a a DNA. You can go into a church community and you can just feel it. Some churches have an exclusive church culture where you walk into that building and you feel like you're an alien, right? You feel like you're out of place. It feels like you've walked into a store at Tea Tree Plaza. You know that feeling where you walk in and you feel like you're not wanted by the people that that should want you? You walk into this place and there's this great sense of exclusivity like you don't belong. Some churches have a superficial, uh, superficial culture where they're trying, they're attempting to be nice, but as you pull on the string, you can see that there is no real love and kindness there at all. I went to Foodland recently where this woman was having an incredibly um, unproductive attempt at being uh, kind and loving towards me. Uh, we were having this conversation and, I, and she said to me, how's your day going? I said, yeah, really good. And I said, uh, what are you up to these days? And she said, well, I'm in year 12. And I said, oh, wow, I think I would, have, um, I would have graduated school before you were even born. And she goes, yeah, totally. <laughs> How welcome did I feel in that place, right? She was trying to be kind, but as I pulled the string, I realized that there was actually no kindness there at all. The culture of the church in Acts was marked by two words. The first of these words is the word awe. Look down in verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. An unstoppable church is an awe-filled church. 
Or is this sense of reverence and wonder? The Greek word for awe, there is this word phobos, and you can translate it two different ways. You can translate it as awe, and you can translate it as fear. What Luke is saying, the writer of this text, is trying to get us to understand that it wasn't a happiness that comes about because all their comforts were being met. It wasn't because the church was playing their favourite songs. It wasn't because the church had their favourite lighting. It wasn't because the church met at their favourite time. There was this great sense of awe, of reverence about what God was doing. Something happened in that church to those people that was making them fall off their chairs in amazement. And it's clear the reason why. It says many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God was at work. Their gaze, their attention was fixated on God at work in the life of their church. You see, there's a risk in churches that we can lose our awe for God because our gaze starts shifting from all that God is doing. This happens when the goal of the church becomes the same goal as the goal of the world. Increase our comfort. Make church more comfortable for me. Convict me, but not too much. Challenge me, but not too much. What was happening in this church was so incredible that people's gaze was fixated on all that God was doing and they were filled with awe. You know, in our church, we can stop noticing all the people that are having their lives transformed by the gospel. People getting saved. People being free of addictions. People that have gone around the same mountain and the same sin issues year after year after year and are finally free of that addiction. It should fill us with awe when our gaze is fixated on all that God is doing. The aesthetics of the building come far, far way down because our gaze is fixated on God at work. The same word phobos is used in Luke 5 after Jesus completes a number of miracles. And it says in Luke 5, And amazement seized them all, all the people, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. They saw Jesus at work. But immediately after this moment, the Pharisees grumbled at Jesus and said, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees had the exact same opportunity to be filled with awe as everybody else did. The same opportunity the disciples had, the same opportunity the healed man had, but they had no awe. Why? Because they thought that they had no need for God in their lives. They felt like they were completely dependent upon themselves and they had no need for God. They could boast in their own riches. They could boast in their own prosperity. They could boast in their own influence. They had no need for God. It says this in the very next verse, in verse 31. It says, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. How many churches lost their awe because they no longer need, they no longer recognize their need for God to intervene. Have you lost your awe for God because you've forgotten how desperately you need God to be moving in your life? Perhaps you need to stop tonight and recognize that if your gaze isn't searching for the movement of God in your life, then you're missing out on seeing something of eternal value. Awe for God and what he is doing. There is another word that describes the culture of the Acts church. Look down in verse 46. 
It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. You see, there was a profound sense of thankfulness among the people of God. There was no sense, no sense of entitlement, which is a major problem problem preaching to our culture. A major problem preaching to our culture. You know, there is a major uh, difficulty in preaching Ephesians 2 verse 10 which says, For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. The message that we are receiving when Paul writes that is that you are his workmanship, that you are his masterpiece. It's an incredible, incredible verse that tells us that we've been crafted by God. You know what the challenge is as we go out and we tell people that God loves you? Is that people in our culture say, of course he does. I'm awesome. Why wouldn't he love me? I'm incredible. You're a masterpiece. I know I am. See, the Acts Church did not have that problem. The Acts Church knew the situation that they were in. They knew their desperate, desperate need of the gospel. The Acts 2 Church was uh, the, the first church, the Acts 2 Church of Acts 2, 42 to 47, was a Jewish church, meaning they had a history of understanding a relationship with God. So they knew that in Genesis, God had given them this perfect place to live in, and they rebelled. They chose to do it their own way. And then as the Israelites traveled, God would constantly care for the Israelites, and he would provide for them, and he would look after them, and he would shepherd them. And every single time the Israelites got everything that they need, they abandoned God. And then Jesus comes on the scene and they've been praying for a Messiah. And who is it that hands Jesus over to the Romans to be killed? It's the Jewish people again. These Jews knew that they had nothing that they could offer God. They knew the depths and the riches of his glorious grace. So when they thought about Jesus, they were aware of their depravity. They were aware that they weren't gods. They were aware that they desperately needed saving. So they step into this moment in time and they knew this truth which we see in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. It says, Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to a cross. The history of of the Jewish people the sins of the Jewish people would have been overwhelming to them. They were filled with thankfulness. The mission of this church is to bring glory to God and joy to the city. And if you want joy and you want to experience, if we want to be a church that is full of joy, we do not need to plaster fake smiles on our faces. If we want to be a church that is full of joy, you don't need to pretend that you're okay. If we want to be an unstoppable church, we don't need road signs that tell you how great you look today. If we want to be a joy-filled church, we actually need to recognize our record of spiritual debt has been cancelled and replaced with the righteousness of Jesus. It is not just that our sins have been pushed away, but they've been replaced by the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what should fill our hearts with delight Not whether you've got your favourite worship leader on, not whether your your favourite service time is on, but actually recognising that our spiritual debt has been paid for. Amen? Amen? Amen.
The culture of an unstoppable church is an awe-filled church and a thankful church recognising the reality of what Christ has done. So we've seen the culture of an unstoppable church. Now let's see the characteristics of an unstoppable church. An important question to ask yourself uh, is what are the essential characteristics of a church? If you had to change cities or go to a new church and, and you were to um, trying to decide what are, the, what are the essential things that a church needs, well, you will find the answer here in the book of Acts. I think the first characteristic of an unstoppable church is undeniably clear. Look down in your Bibles in verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves. And you'll see four different uh, things that they are devoted to. We'll summarize those in three points here. And it is true that many churches in Australia will be devoted, but are they devoted to the right things? Are we devoted to the right things? Love people working hard, long hours, but we need to be careful to be devoted to what God would have us be devoted to. The Unstoppable Church had conviction about what they were to be devoted to. And here's their first conviction. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is the first time that you ever see in the Bible this phrase, the apostles' teaching or the teaching of the apostles. And you see, we need to be careful. If you were to um, ask a thousand churches, right? You were to do a survey and say, um, do you uh, prioritize and do you value um, biblical teaching? You will get 999 churches saying, yeah, we do. And you'll get one honest church. But if you go into that church and you listen to many of the messages in those churches, what you will get are spiritual sermons that lack gospel truth. You will hear spiritual things, but nothing about the reality of Jesus as both Saviour and as Lord. See, the central claim of the Christian message is that Jesus Christ is both Saviour and He is Lord. You would say, well, isn't that what most churches would still affirm today? I would say that you would immediately lose 30% of the churches if you were to ask them whether the central claim of their week-by-week -week message is the centrality of Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And you may even lose another 30% if you were to actually listen to those messages. I remember last year I was studying preaching at the theological college that I'm at, and my lecturer was a guy named Mike Ryder, and he's the director of the Centre for Biblical Preaching. And he said once he was preaching... Uh, this outstanding sermon where he could just hear the angels rejoicing as he was preaching. And he um, got off stage and um, the, message, the service finished and he had uh, this older wise guy um, come up to him and say, uh, that sermon was excellent. It would have preached really well in a synagogue as well. And his point is really important. He was saying that the sermon was so divorced from grace and so wrapped up in law that an ancient Jew could have sat in that service and just applauded. What kind of sermons are we preaching if a Christian, a Jew, a Buddhist, a Muslim, and a Mormon can all sit there and applaud our sermons? The central claim of all of our messages need to be exactly what the apostles taught which was Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And I must admit, I'm not trying to just bash other churches. I've done it. I remember in my early days preaching here, I preached a sermon that um, I was just in the midst of it and I knew it was going really, really well, right? I got to the end of the message and I, just, I was waiting for the next day at work where you get to stroll through the corridor and know that you're hot stuff, right? And, um, the, and I just, and Timon gave me this, right? Called me into his office and he said to me, uh, how do you think it went last night? Immediately I know it didn't go very well. 
And um, he said to me, uh, did you preach the passage or did you just use the passage to say whatever you wanted to say? Immediately in um, that moment, I was shocked but rightly held to account. Though admittedly my failure was out of inexperience rather than a willful disobedience. What happens when you preach the author's intent of the passage? You get the full counsel of Scripture and you get the central message that Jesus Christ is both the Saviour of the world and the Lord of it. The cornerstone of biblical preaching is to preach exactly what the author's intent of the passage is. One of the, uh, my favourite things to do in my early 20s was to go to a restaurant on Ingle Farm called Settlers. Uh, why? Because it's a buffet restaurant. And I could pick whatever I wanted and leave whatever I didn't want behind. So lots of spring rolls, um, lots of ice cream, lots of that like weird jelly that you're not quite sure how long it's been there. But I used to get right, right into it as well. Um, going to Settlers was fun, but it was of no nutritional value. And often we can sit in messages and they can be fun, they can make you laugh, they can make you cry, and they can convict and challenge you, but not too much. But are they of spiritual value? The unstoppable church knew that, their need for the apostles' teaching, and they weren't threatened by it because they knew what kind of saviour Jesus was and they knew what kind of Lord he was. That the kind of Lord that we have is a Lord that is patient, right? A Lord that is kind, a Lord that is loving, a Lord that wants us to experience life and life in all of its fullness. And this is the kind of Lord that we need in our lives. Not only were the devoted, uh, were the um, early church devoted to the apostles' teaching, but they are also devoted to the fellowship. They are devoted to each other. Verse 42 in your Bibles tells us that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. But verse 44 tells us about the level of commitment that they had to this fellowship. Look down in your Bibles in verse 44. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. All things in common. This is one of the most beautiful realities of the church. Um, why is uh, your first day at school often uh, a scary day? It's because you're looking for your group, right? Um, in my primary school days, I had that experience exactly like the movies where you come into a school midterm, and so you go straight to the principal's office, and then they give you that really reluctant fellow student that needs to show you around the property. And then so they showed me, um, you know, they show you the gym, and they show you the classroom, and they show you uh, the toilets, and then they um, take you through the quadrangle, and they show you the different groups, and they'll show you um, the geeks, and they'll show you the goths, and they'll show you the jocks, and they'll show you the nerds who are apparently smart like geeks but lack the social skills. I didn't know that. <laughs> then you have the popular good-looking kids, and then you have everyone else who didn't make it into a group. The beautiful thing about being a Christian is that what unites people is not our shared love of sport and our inability to play it, but it is the cross of Jesus Christ. It means that you and I can have absolutely nothing in our history in common at all apart from the saving work of Christ in our life and we can be as close as brothers. It's not about whether we like the same sports. It's not about whether we've seen Endgame yet. You should go and see Endgame. It's not about those things that unite us. It's about our relationship with Jesus Christ that you and I can be so close as brothers, although you can be born 30 years after me, 
20 years before me, hate sport, have hair. We can be as close as brothers. And what that means for us is that when you have a win in your life, I have a win in my life. And when you have a need in your life, then I have a need in my life. The truth of my experience here at, at City Reach is that my life groups have been there for me in my life when it was entirely inconvenient for them. My life group, when my wife and I had a miscarriage, brought around a whole bunch of food for us every single day, not because we lost the inability to cook, but because they wanted to show their deep love and concern for us. There's a woman in our church who um, has uh, two teenage boys, and she calls us all the time asking if she can babysit for our kids so we can have a night off. There's a couple in our life group, Damo and Rachel, who have no kids and want to babysit our kids. Makes no sense, right? It totally inconveniences them. And I pray that many people in our church have the same story about the way that Beck and I love them too. The truth is the kind of unstoppable church that we see in Acts 2, 42 to 47, wasn't the kind of church that was spurred on by what was most convenient. It was about what each other needed because they knew how much Christ had given to them. There are people that knew that they could offer Christ nothing in return, but God poured out everything for us so that we might be called his children. So maybe the application for some of us tonight is that we need to think about this church not like a cinema, where we come into church and we've got our seat that we regularly sit in, and we watch church, and then we go home and think about what we liked and what we didn't like. But maybe right now we can be praying, who comes to mind that needs me to inconvenience myself for the current need that they have in their life? How can I live my life in such a way where I can love people just like Christ did, love them knowing that they can't give anything back to me? That is the kind of unstoppable church that we see in Scripture. I knew a man in my previous church um, when the service was over, when the bell went, his butt didn't hit the pew. He didn't sit down and spend 20 minutes kind of speaking to his friends about how the weekend was. He would turn around and he would look for the spiritual need in the room. And that's the kind of guy I want to be. Maybe that's the kind of person that you want to be as well. That you would make this life not about your own comfort, but you would make your life about the needs of those around you. The Unstoppable Church was devoted to the apostles' teaching and they were devoted to the fellowship. Look down in your Bibles again. It says that they were devoted, in verse 42, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and thirdly, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Breaking of bread, this active communion and prayer, are the means by which we remind ourselves who we've put our hope in. Now, the Chinese church is a dependent church and they are a thriving church, right? I once heard a story about a pastor went to visit an underground church in China. And um, uh, this is the persecuted church in China where believers are gathering in secret and hiding for fear that the government will, will arrest them under false charges and throw away the key because the government wants to have complete control over every element of Chinese life. This pastor went to visit them and they were speaking about this phenomenon that happens in Australian churches where uh, Christians uh, go to church two out of four weeks uh, in a month and they come to church when it works for them and then they'll leave for a while and they'll come back. And as he was uh, having this conversation, the Chinese men in the church just started laughing hysterically. 
So we asked them why they were laughing, and they said, we've never heard of an uncommitted Christian before. To live as a Christian for us means fear of imprisonment and even death. To us, there is no such thing as a halfway Christian. The early church were a dependent church who needed constant reminding of the hope that they had, what they could give to their fellow uh, brothers and sisters, so that all had need, did not come out of prosperity. The motivation was all that Christ had given them. The early church was unstoppable. It was marked by a DNA of joy and, for thank- and thankfulness. And they gave out of this joy and they gave out of this thankfulness. It was a devoted joy. It was a conviction by a deep was convicted by a deep devotion to the apostles' teaching to one another and to the breaking of bread. I want to be that kind of church where our love for God moves us into devotion. What's also true is that many times I fail at this. It's also true that the disciples spent much of the gospel letters failing at this kind of devotion. So let's uh, ask our final question tonight. What will keep our church and other churches relentless in their pursuit, in our pursuit of being the kind of church that God wants us to be? Well, to answer that, we actually need to go back to the start of Acts 2 and talk about the confidence of an unstoppable church, the confidence of an unstoppable church. There is a real danger. There is a real danger when we start thinking that the way that you grow a business is the same way that a church grows. A real danger in thinking that the way that a business grows is the same way that a church grows. If you want to grow a, a great business or a great organisation, your foundation is a great plan. Get the plan right, then you have an equation for success. In the church world, though we do plan, and you see all through Paul's letters that there were many plans put in place, the plan is never the foundation to a healthy church. The foundation of a healthy church is its people filled by the Spirit of God. People that rely and lean and depend upon and are filled by the Holy Spirit. See, what gave the apostles the confidence to go out on the mission that God set for them wasn't the plan. The plan paralyzed them. The plan of sending out the gospel through Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was killed, the plan of of sending out the gospel to Judea and Samaria, Samaritans hated Jews, the plan of sending out the gospel into Rome where the the Romans, um, Romans believed that if anyone would call anyone a king but Caesar, they would be immediately put to death. The plan didn't fill them with any confidence at all. It paralyzed them. What gave them the confidence to step out and join God in his great mission? It was the promise of the Father for the person of the Holy Spirit. Listen to these words in Acts 1, verses 4 to 5. They'll be on the screen before we get to Acts 2. It says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, Not many days from now. Was God faithful to deliver this Holy Spirit? Yes, he was. Now look down in your Bibles in Acts 2 verse 1. 
It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Um, Pentecost was a Jewish festival that happened 50 days after Passover. Pente just means 50. And it was this celebration of, of God handing down the Lord, this gift of the Lord, uh, the law from Mount Sinai. And on this Pentecost, they would receive an even greater gift. Look down at verse 10. It says, and suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What do we mean by other tongues? Well, it clearly meant tongues of other known languages. Look down in your Bible in verse 5. This is super important. Now, they, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us, each of us in his own native language? See, the Jewish faith was a cultural faith. If you became a Jew, that meant you became an Israelite. You adopted the culture of that faith group. This sign was for both the apostles and for the Jews, that when you became a Christian, you didn't need to adopt the culture of that faith group. See, if you're in here tonight and you're not quite a Christian yet, you don't need to look around and say, well, how do I need a dress? You don't need to look around and say, well, how do I need to speak? You don't need to look around and say, do I need a, a better resume where, like, where I came from? Or do I need something else to make me fit in? All you need is the grace of Jesus Christ believed upon by faith. That is all you need. It was also a message to the apostles to remind them that for the gospel to go out to every single nation, every single tongue, every single tribe, God was going to give them not only the mission, but he was going to give them the power for the mission. It's through the power of the person of the Holy Spirit within us. This moment in history was a sign to the apostles that they could have confidence that being sent out on mission did not mean being sent alone. The reason the disciples can have confidence in their mission is the same reason that we can have confidence in our mission today. The Holy Spirit within us. So how do we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible makes it very clear in Ephesians 4 verse 5 that there is one baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you become a Christian, you are baptized into the family. One baptism, one church. But the Bible does say that after you become a Christian, you can quench the Holy Spirit, meaning you can limit the Holy Spirit in your life. You can also be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can move through you and flourish and thrive through you. One baptism, many fillings. The filling of the Holy Spirit has also been called the enabling of the Holy Spirit. It's putting forward this idea that without the Holy Spirit, None of what God has called you to do is possible. But with the Holy Spirit, you have the power to do everything that he has called you to do. Uh, it's like the electricity that brings power to a house. Last year, we had our house renovated. Um, and the plan was perfect. Everyone knew what their job was. 
But when I came home at the end of the day and tried to turn the light switch on to my house, there was no power. I could stand there and think of creative ways to turn the light switch on and off. I could play cool music as I switched the light switch. I could have people welcoming me to the light switch and shaking my hand as I walked in. I could make the experience of turning on the light switch a comfortable and exciting experience. But without the power being turned on, then everything else was done in vain. Do you understand? See, we can do all these things, but they are not the foundation of the church. We can have great lighting, which inspires us. We can have great music, which moves us. But if we are a people resistant to the Holy Spirit, then everything we do is in vain. Our plans mean nothing. God never expected you to accept the task of God's mission without also you receiving the power of God's mission. So we need to ask, as we close here tonight, as the band wants to come back up, um, so how are we filled by the Spirit? Now, I preached a message on this a few weeks ago, maybe six weeks ago. That if, It's a, quite a detailed message, and if you want to get that online, I would encourage you to look at that. But as I was praying through this message tonight, about what it means to be filled by the Spirit, I did, um, I felt like the Lord put something quite simple on my heart. And that was simply to say that uh, you cannot be filled by the Spirit if you're already full of something else. You cannot be filled with the Spirit if you're already full of something else. Have you filled your life with so much other stuff that the Spirit is simply unable to work within you? Have you filled your life with pride about what you can accomplish through your own ability? Have you filled your life with doubt about what God can do through Have you filled your life with doubt about what God can do through you because you have a limited view of God? Have you filled your life with yourself? You've made everything about your needs and your comfort. Now there's no room for God to use you to reach others. In Acts 1 verse 4 to 5, uh, Jesus gives them the simple instruction to wait, to wait for the Spirit. He gave them a mission, but he was also saying that everything you do from here on in will make no difference at all until you get from me what really matters most, which is the Spirit living inside you. I once heard a pastor say, if the Holy Spirit withdrew himself from 90% of the churches in Australia, most of them would continue on as if nothing had ever happened. I don't want to be part of a church like that. Yeah, I want to be part of a church where the people are full of the Spirit. You can lose your building but still be at a great church if you have the Holy Spirit. But if you lose the Holy Spirit, you can have the best building in Australia and God's face will not shine upon you. The end of Acts 2, 42 to 47, it says that the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. It was God's seal of approval of what was happening there. You can have a stutter like Moses. You can have a history of being a tax treat like Matthew. You can have the resume of a murderer like Paul and like Moses. But if the Holy Spirit is in you, then God can use you profoundly for his kingdom. But if you resist the Holy Spirit, then God will not delight to use you. I would love to pray for you tonight. If you just want to bow your head and close your eyes. 
It might be that you've been striving in your mission in the world and ministry in the life of the church. You feel like this weight on your shoulder uh, over all that God has called you to do and you feel distracted and tempted by the world. And I just want to invite you in this moment. The Bible says that it is the Lord's kindness that leads us to repentance. That it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And just in this moment, I just want uh, to give you space to meet with God. And you might like to pray something like this before God. God, I repent of my sin. I repent of um, seeking the power, not from you, but from my own strength, my own wisdom, my own intelligence, my own ability. I repent, Lord. I acknowledge that your word leads me to you and there I find the gift of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he lived. Thank you that Jesus died. Thank you that Jesus was resurrected. I thank you that at his ascension into heaven, he promised us his Holy Spirit and he fulfilled that promise. God, I ask that you would fill me with your spirit. Comfort me by your spirit. Challenge me. Confront me with your spirit. Lead me with your spirit. Give me boldness and courage by your spirit. God, move in me. You have freedom to move in me. Lord, you have freedom to move in me. Why don't you just take this moment to worship the Lord in your heart? and ask for what you need, that you might glorify him every day. Why don't you take this moment to pray for our church? Pray that our church would be full of people that are filled by your spirit. Seek not the fame of our own name, but of the fame of King Jesus.